Well, listen, if you are visiting, then as I said before, thank you for coming. This is very much a, a series of Visitor Sundays for us in, in January. I didn't know who, if, if anybody would come on New Year's Day. This is the first time we've actually done a, a service on New Year's Day because it's, I've only been here six and a half years. This is the first time, and I assumed it was going to be me and Josh and the band. But you've all come, which is awesome, and thanks for coming. You guys are the best. We assume that everybody else is on holiday. If we find out otherwise, wag your finger at them and tut in the name of Jesus. That would just be great. We're not a self-righteous church, but we do enjoy mocking people, so please do that. Um, It's just funny. So the subtitle of this series is Honest Answers to Tough Questions. And our desire is is to give honest answers to tough questions. And people have tough questions. Certainly the people I hang around with have tough questions. Sometimes in the church, very often outside of the church. I play for Asquith Soccer Club, so I'm in a squad of 34 other people. And when I go camping with them once a year at different times, they have tough questions. They want to know why I'm a vicar and if holy water exists. There are important things on their mind to ask me. And we wanted to start this series with the question of what's it got to do with me? Christianity in all its fullness, what has it got to do with me, an important question, a tough question, a question I want to give an honest answer to. And so let's pray, and then we'll dive into it together. Well, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we do have answers to tough questions in your word. Your word is God-breathed. You've exhaled it from your mouth. It's clarifying for us. It's helpful for us. It's encouraging for us. It's convicting to us. It's truth. So Lord, would you open our eyes and open our hearts to the truth afresh this morning. For those that have never heard it before, Lord, would it be, would it be eye-opening and life-changing for them? And for those that have heard it many times before, Lord, would you give us the gift of childlike eyes today? As if to see it for the first time, the glories of all you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, throughout human history, there have been many great rescues. One rescue that's always stood out in my mind is the rescue of one Jessica McClure. See, when Jessica was 18 months old, she fell down an eight-inch wide-opened water well. In October of 1987, this 18-month-old toddler found an eight-inch hole in a garden, and she fell down it with one leg above her head and the other leg the other way. In a second, she fell 22 feet down this hole, And the only thing that stopped her falling further was that she got her top foot caught on some debris. And if she hadn't, underneath that 22-foot hole was a 67-foot cavern drop below her. Well, Police Sergeant Andy Glascock was on duty that day, and he describes what he found in the following article. Nobody understood the magnitude of it. You couldn't even begin to comprehend it. There was a small backyard with a little metal pipe sticking out of it. No one could believe that someone could fall down it. But they had. And it was as you heard the crying that you realized someone was down there. Upon arrival, a few officers began a desperate attempt to try and free Jessica by digging with anything in sight as other units and firefighters were called to the scene. 
They were basically making no progress trying to free her. And so eventually realized they would need someone with real expertise to try and get her out. They contacted a man named David Lilly, who was a veteran engineer who worked with the U.S. Department of Mine Safety. This man had years of experience rescuing trapped miners. The problem was he was in New Mexico, and so it would take time to get him there. Meanwhile, everyone already at the scene started to put their heads together to figure out what to do. There was a backhoe there, and so someone tried to dig a hole, but that didn't work. The earth was too hard. They then decided to drill a hole next to the well and dig across to it. They thought it would be accomplished in an hour or so. Instead, it went on and on. More rescue teams, spectators, and media began to show up all the time. The hardest part in it all was that you could hear her crying. It was a scared whimper, like she was not sure what was going on. I have children, and there was no way once you heard the voice that you could leave her there until the end of it. As I listened to Jessica cry, I thought about my children, my wife. I raised four kids on my own and adopted one more. I'm a child type of guy, so I couldn't listen to the crying too long without getting tears in my eyes. Finally, David Lilly, the expert in rescuing miners, arrived and he too soon met several obstacles. The rock beside the well was prehistoric rock. It would take almost two days to cut through. They were making horrendously slow process, drilling down at only two inches per hour. Finally, Lily said that this wasn't going to work as it was and that they would need a high-pressure water-blasting drill. The nearest one was all the, cry, all the way across the state of Texas, and so they had it immediately put on a plane. When the drill arrived, they began drilling very successfully. And after three days of drilling down, they began to dig across by hand. It was tedious. But finally, they got to the pipe, drilled a hole through it, and the first rescuer reached up and touched Jessica's toe. The first actual rescue attempt was to prove unsuccessful. They had trouble getting into the open shaft in a way that could free her, and she just couldn't get her out. The team came back up to the surface to reevaluate and regroup, and at that point they realized there was no plan B. They had to get her out one way or another, even if they had to break her leg to get her out. She wasn't able to stay there much longer. The second time they went into the shaft, everything at the surface was very tense. Then up came one of the rescue workers, holding baby Jessica in his arms. At that moment, I fell on my knees and started crying. We all did. Everyone was crying tears of gladness because baby Jessica had been saved. You know, the rescue of Jessica McClure truly is an incredible rescue, isn't it? Three days down an eight-inch pipe with one leg above your head and one leg below you, crying afraid in the dark. Yet three days later, that rescue worker holds her in his arms and brings her out. Well, my friends, we will never understand what Christianity has got to do with us until we understand that like Jessica McClure, we too are in desperate need of a rescuer. 
We too are in desperate need of a saviour because our situation before the Lord is not just fine and dandy and no big deal. Our situation before the Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is as if we are 22 feet down an 8-inch pipe and unable to do anything about it. And Christianity will never make sense to us until we realise that that is the reality of our situation outside of Jesus Christ outside of Christianity. See, the background to the question can only be understood if we understand that God is completely holy in every way. You know, growing up, I never got that. I grew up going to church. But I thought that God was like, you know, in terms of personality, on a level par with Santa Claus. I mean, he was just this nice guy. I just imagined God as being simply good. If somebody had asked me to paint a picture of God Probably would have been Santa Claus-esque minus the red suit. Just a warm, friendly guy with rosy red cheeks, a genie in the lamp, just this good guy that you go and talk to every now and again when you're going through troubles and when you're going through difficulties. And yet the Bible teaches us that God is good, but he's way more than that. He's holy. He is good, but he is not altogether safe. Hebrews 12, chapter 28, verse 28, says God is a consuming fire. Well, that doesn't sound like Santa Claus to me. God in his splendor is a consuming fire. And the author then instructs us to worship him, therefore, with reverence and awe. To see him as the majesty and king that he really is and worship him then with reverence and awe before him. Because he's a consuming fire. Yes, he's good, but he is not altogether safe. Because God is holy. Holiness simply means separateness, set apart. And that's who God is. He's holy. He's set apart from us in in every way. I mean, for a starter, God is set apart from us in his capabilities. You ever thought about that? God can just do a whole load of things that you can't do. Things that we worry about, he doesn't worry about at all. He doesn't need to worry about it because he can change it in a moment. All these things we get anxious about, we're like ants before the creator. Going, oh, oh, I'm so panicked. I'm so panicked. You really don't need to panic because he has got it all under control. The Bible tells us this, Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on scales and the hills in a balance? I love that. It's so dramatic, so deep, so big. The picture is one of a workshop. And the question is to us, who can do these things? But the point he's trying to make is you can't, but God can. 70% of our world is covered in sea. Sometimes I have to go over to to LA, go over to the States, and you're crossing the water for hour after hour after hour after hour. You realize how massive the water is. That's just one ocean around the world. 70% of our world is covered in ocean. And yet according to Isaiah 40, God can hold all that in the hollow of his hand. Man has tried and failed to measure the universe. They say it is ever-expanding. What that simply means is they haven't built a telescope big enough yet to keep seeing it. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger before their eyes. We can't measure it. Mankind is unable to measure it. But to God, it's easy. It's just the breadth of his hand. From his thumb to his finger. 
All the mountain ranges of the world, Himalayas, Alps, Andes, Rocky Mountains, the Pennines. Who can lift them up and just put them on scales? Well, none of us. But to God, he just picks them up. Hey, this is how much they weigh. He goes on to tell us that even the nations, the grand nations of the earth, are like dust on the scales before the Lord. He could just flick it off if he wanted to. He is above and beyond us in every way. And Job 26 verse 14 says, And these are just the outer fringes of his works. And so they are. Consider then the human body. A book I once came across many years ago called Springboards. The author writes as following about our bodies. He says, Perhaps the greatest proof of the Creator's existence is when you gaze into the mirror. Contrary to common belief, your lungs are more than just bags to breathe smoke into. They are designed to filter oxygen out of the air you breathe. These incredible organs contain 300,000 million tiny blood vessels called capillaries. Your entire blood supply washes through your lungs once every minute. In your lifetime, the marrow in your bones will create approximately half a ton of red blood cells. You have focusing muscles in your eyes that move an estimated 100,000 times each day. The same eye has within it a retina that covers less than a square inch and contains 137 million light-sensitive cells. A wide-eyed Charles Darwin once said, to suppose that the eye could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. Your brain contains within it 10,000 million neurons or microscopic nerve cells. Your stomach, which produces four pints of gastric juice each day, has 35 million glands lining it. Next time you eat a delicious meal, be thankful for the 8,000 taste buds that were put into your mouth. Imagine how boring eating would be without them. You know, the human body is an incredible thing. The fact that it heals itself is an incredible thing. If you start to study the body, it's dramatic. That doesn't just happen by a bunch of random cells just throwing themselves together and going, oh, wow, it's a human. God oversees all those things and sustains those things and sustains your lungs even now, which is why you're still breathing. Consider the stars. There are 100 billion galaxies, and each of the galaxies, 100 billion of them, have at least 100 billion stars in them. I can't do the math off the cuff. That's a lot of stars, okay? There are billions and billions and billions and billions of stars. Isaiah 40 verse 26 says, Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. 100 billion galaxies, 100 billion stars. The Bible tells us that God created all of these. He names them and he sustains them so that not one is missing. Listen, God is set apart from us. He is holy from us in his capabilities, isn't he? He can do things that you and I would never even dream of. And when you start to see yourself before him, you realize, my, I am quite pathetic, aren't I? Yes, but he is majestic. He is the creator king that can do all things without even trying. God is set apart from us in his capabilities and he is also set apart from us in his moral purity. 
See, God is holy in a way that we can't even imagine. He's set apart from sin in a way that we find it hard to even grasp. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite theologians, says it this way. I think it's helpful. He says, We cannot grasp the divine holiness by thinking of something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is, simply the be- is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. No. God's holiness stands apart, unique, unapproachable, and incomprehensible. I think that's so helpful. Because sometimes when we think of somebody being holy, we just think of the best person we've ever met, isn't it? It's usually our grandma. And then we think, okay, times that by a million. Oh, I think I've got it. Yes, very holy. No, you're still nowhere even close. God is completely separate from us. He's completely separate from sin. He's completely separate from sin in every way. He's separate from sin and he separates himself from all sin. And it's that which leaves us as his creatures with a serious problem. Indeed, I believe man's greatest problem. See, let me ask you, if we went out to the streets of Hornsby this morning and asked them, what is is Gran's, her greatest problem as well? What is man's greatest problem? What do you think they would say? I reckon they'd probably say, well, what is man's greatest problem? Well, probably sickness and disease, cancer. We need to find a cure for cancer so people stop dying of cancer. Or heart disease or AIDS. List off all the health issues. That's, that's man's greatest problem, the fact that we keep dying all the time. And we need to be able to mend people quicker. Maybe for somebody else, they'd simply say, no, I don't think it's that. I think it's ISIS. Look at what's going on in Syria. They could take over the world soon. The problem is ISIS and terrorism around the world. It's hideous. It's wrong. It's scary. Somebody else might just say, well, crime. I think the crime rates around the world are increasing. It concerns me. Somebody else might say, well, education or lack of jobs or lack of affordable housing in Sydney. Have you seen how expensive it is? And then they start to go on for about five minutes and give you all the stats of how you'll never be able to afford a home ever. To so many different people, man's greatest problem has so many different answers. And yet when we open this book, the Bible, what we see is man's greatest problem isn't any of those things. Man's greatest problem in the Bible is our sin. Man's greatest problem is our sinfulness compared to his grand holiness. See, Hebrews 9 verse 27 explains it this way. I think so helpfully. But indeed soberly. He says man is destined to die once. And after that faces judgment. Man. Me. You. Is destined to die once. And after that faces judgment. We're not talking about Santa Claus there. We're talking about standing before the king of kings in all his profound holiness. One who is far greater than us in his capabilities. One who is far greater than us in his morality. We're destined to die once and after that we face judgment. Now for some, when you talk to them about this, it doesn't appear to be a problem. Because for some, they believe that when you die, nothing happens. That just, you know, you die and then, wow, it's it's nothing. So the idea of love and things like that, then they're just, you know, 
chemicals in your body, it's just emotional trickery. You don't actually feel love, it's just your body tricking you that you feel those things. All this comes to nothing, it just doesn't matter. You die and it's just you're gone. To somebody else, they're not worried about it because, well, they believe that they get a second chance. You know, there's this idea of reincarnation, you get a purgatory for a bit, see how you go. Hopefully a few people will pray for you here and then you'll get out of it in a few years. For other people, they're not worried about it because they compare themselves to everybody else. And they think, well, I'm definitely not as bad as Hitler. I'm definitely not as bad as Osama bin Laden. Probably not as good as Mother Teresa, but kind of in the middle, so I'll probably just edge in. So they're not worried about dying at all because they've been nice. You never go to a funeral and then the vicar or whoever it is says, oh, they were just such a horrible person. Now, everybody is a hero. At a, at a, you know what I mean? When you get to go, everybody is amazing. They were just the loveliest person ever in the world. So everybody thinks, therefore, they go to heaven because they were lovely. I remember lovely things, so they go to heaven. And yet again, the Bible doesn't teach those things. The Bible teaches that we will stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords and we will give an account for our lives in the there and then And we will not give an account compared to everybody else. We will give an account compared to his standard. His word. What he has called us to as his, as our creator. And we see his standard, his law in Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commandments. You know those things that we see Charles Heston write on in the movie. Well that actually happened. God actually came down and wrote Ten Commandments out, the standard that we're going to give an account to when we die. Jesus helps us in Mark chapter 12. The scribe asks him, listen, there are so many different commandments. What's, what's like the main ones? If we're going to stick to any, what, what are the key ones? And he gives us two, explaining that all the other commandments ultimately come out of those. This is God's standard. This is what you're going to be judged up against. When you die, when, you're, when your eyes close in death and you stand before him and give an account, these are the standards, Okay. Here's the two. Here's the big two. Number one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Man, that's pretty inclusive. All your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. The way it's written is all of your life. From life's first cry to final death. All of your life, you love him. You are completely sold out for him. He's the only thing, the main thing in your life. Everything is about God in your life. And then the second commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of them. Every person that you come across, you love them as if they were you. You care for them like you care for yourself. You feed them like you feed yourself. You're generous with them like you want to be generous with yourself. Man, they're they're pretty big deals. And who amongst us in reality has really done that? That's just two of the ten. But who amongst us has really done those? No one. Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have. Every single one of us, we exchange the creator for the created. Instead of living for him, living for him with our heart and soul and mind and strength and being aware that you made me, so now I live for your glory. No, we say, I'm not even sure I believe in you. I'm going to live for my glory. I'm going to help people, right? Because, you know, I want to help people. I'm a nice person. But ultimately, I'm living for me. I've exchanged the creator for the created. We've all all fallen short of the glory of God and that leaves us with a serious problem. Because God is holy. 
and we have profaned his standard. See, because of our sin, we are cut off from God. Sometimes you meet people and they are sinful before the Lord. They're not living for him in any way. They have no faith whatsoever, but they feel they are close to God. Well, I feel lots of things, but just because I feel them doesn't make them true. God makes it clear that in our sinfulness, we are cut off from him. Isaiah 59 verse 1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. See, because of our sin, there is a great chasm between us and God. If we're here, God's in England, all right? There is a great chasm between us that cannot just be walked or flown upon by ourselves. God is holy and we are sinful. So because of our sin, we are cut off from him. And because of our sin, we are on a collision course with his wrath. Let me explain to you about this wrath thing. D.A. Carson says it best, a wonderful theologian. He says, in the Bible, God's wrath is a function of his holiness. His wrath or anger is not the explosion of a bad temper or a chronic inability to restrain his irritability but rather a just and principled opposition to sin. God's holiness is so amazingly glorious that it demands that he be wrathful with those of his creatures who defy him, sly his majesty, turn their noses at his words and works, and insist on their own independence, even though every breath they breathe, not to mention their very existence, depends on his providential care. If God were to gaze at sin and rebellion, shrug his shoulders and mutter, well, I'm not too bothered. I can forgive these people. I don't really care what they do. Surely there would be something morally deficient about him. Should God care nothing of Hitler's outrages? Should God care nothing of my rebellion or your rebellion? If he acted this way, he would ultimately discount his own significance, sully his own glory, besmirch his own honor, and soil his own integrity. That's so true. God is a holy judge of all. If he was just to look on at things, then he'd go, oh, never mind. There'd be something about him that even we understand in our sinfulness, that's wrong, this isn't right. You can't just let those things off. That's called justice. And that's what we have in our hearts because we're made in the image of God. That's why we feel those things. There is a coming day of God's wrath in history to come. And the truth is in the Bible, there is nothing more fearful to write about. The writer of the Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And in Revelation, John writes, for the day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? The coming future day of God's wrath is real. And the Bible's clear that where we are found in our sin... We will be removed from him for all eternity into a place where there will be no escape, no relief, no end, and eternity before the righteous, ever-burning wrath of God. And in our humanity, we are all on a collision course with it. You see, we're more like Jessica McClure than you realize, aren't we? In our humanity, we're down that eight-inch pipe. 
And there's nothing we can do about it. We've rejected God. That's when we jumped in. The moment we reject God, we're down the pipe. We rejected him. And then we look up at him and we even have the cheek sometimes with our leg above our head to say, this is your fault. This sucks. Look at everything you've made. You never helped me. We are down the pipe. We are objects of God's wrath. And we are destined to die once and after that face judgment. Well, here's the good news, though, of the greatest rescue ever seen. God could have left you there. Could have left me there. But he didn't. John 3.16 says it this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Isn't that incredible? God could have left us there. We jumped down the pipe. He didn't push us down the pipe. We jumped. We decided, I don't give a stuff about you. I'm going down the pipe. It's all the good stuff's down there. We rejected him, and he could have left us there willingly and said, well, I told you not to. I've told you all that you need in this book. You are the ones that rejected it. I've given you everything you need. I made you. I created you. I I gave you an identity in me, a joy in me, a hope in me, but you've all walked away from me. God could have left us down the pipe and been perfectly just and perfectly right. But God is also loving and gracious. And so instead of leaving us, he in grace and love sent his son on the greatest rescue mission ever told. For us. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, God's own son, came to earth on the greatest rescue mission ever told. He was born through the birth canal of the Virgin Mary. He then lived a sinless life. He was tempted just as we are, and yet never gave in to sin. Never jumped down the pipe of rebellion against God. He was tempted to. He was tempted to sin just like we are, but he never did. And then at the age of 33, he gave his life as a ransom for many. He died the most gruesome and terrifying death. His friends abandoned him. The disciples rejected him. The crowds were jeering at him. He was whipped and scourged. He was then crucified and hung on a cross to die for hours. But the most painful thing of all to him was divine abandonment. The father who he had known for all eternity passed. In that moment, turned his face away from him. In effect, on the cross, Jesus jumped down the pipe for us. And the father didn't rescue him. He left him to die. Why? As our substitute. Because our sin must be paid for. Before the holiness of God, our sin, our our rebellion against God must be paid for. And that's why Jesus came. To pay it. When he was hanging on the cross in our place, he made it possible for the great exchange to take place. He made it possible for all those who will put their faith in him as their Lord and Savior to be forgiven of their sin and be redeemed to have a relationship with God again and to know heaven is their home. How? Because through faith, he takes off his sinlessness and wraps it around our bodies. 
and says, this is your story now. This is the way the Father will look at you through my sinlessness. And then on the cross, he's clothed in our sin. Which is why the Father pours his wrath out on him. It's the great exchange. Our sin and the consequences go to him. And his sinlessness get wrapped around us. Isn't that incredible? This divine rescue is where we see amazing grace. We didn't deserve it. None of us in this room deserved it. And yet this divine rescue shows us grace. And it also shows us abounding love. Because this cost him everything. Josh Harris, one of my friends who's a pastor, says it this way. He says, It is impossible to comprehend all that this cost would have meant for the Father to give up his Son to come on this mission of salvation. God the Father and God the Son had enjoyed uninterrupted joy and fellowship and communion for all of eternity past. And yet when Jesus came to earth and became a human being, he left his Father's side. He left the glory and perfection of heaven to enter into the poverty and pain of this world. And the Father, out of love for us, gave him up. His Father sent his Son and said, Son, go down the pipe and I'm not coming to get you. And then the Father goes in for us who are in the pipe and takes us out and brings us to the surface. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so, Christianity, what's it got to do with me? My friends, for every one of us in this room, I want to encourage you, it's got everything to do with you. It's got everything to do with you. Because Christianity isn't primarily about people who read their Bibles and go to church and sing a lot and do nice things for people. Christianity is about a people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and because of that and that reason alone have been forgiven of their sin, redeemed, saved and rescued and know for sure then that heaven is their home. My friends, if you're here today then and you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Saviour, well on this day, January the 1st, 2017, would you know afresh of the Father's and the Son's passionate and personal and particular love for you? Because it's right here. So easy to look out at the year ahead and just think, oh my gosh, this is overwhelming. All these things that are going to take place, all these things that I've got to do. Before you were even born, God knew exactly what you were going to face this year. Every minute of it. And at the right time, He sent His Son to die in your place so that you would be adopted into His family where He holds you. And he will never let you go, hemming you in both behind and before. Explaining to us all along that he will never forsake you. Because he forsook his son in your place. Your family now. 
He has you. And so this day, as you review your great salvation, would you know who is personal and particular and passionate love for you? And I want to encourage you, would you never move on from it? Out of everything else you do this year, don't move on from the truth of the gospel. But David Price says, we never move on from the cross, only ever into a deeper understanding of it. It's because when we gather around Calvary, we realize, I am so small, but you are so great. I can do so little, but you've done it all. Lord, I don't know what's going on in my life, but I see you dying in my place and I trust you. I may not know what, but I do know who. I may struggle with how this is going to work out, but I have no question of who holds me. We must never move on from Calvary. That's why church is so important, because when we gather, we review the gospel together. We review Calvary together. And it fuels us for our lives. If you're a Christian, then never move on from the cross. And would you know today of his personal, passionate, and particular love for you? And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then before you go home today, would you know him? It's like John in his testimony. Maybe you've been knocking around in church for a little while, you've heard about it for some time, and you just think, man, this is crazy, but I'm kind of drawn to it, but it is crazy. And maybe today then you realize for the first time who you really are before God, namely down the pipe. I have good news. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. I want to encourage you then, believe. Put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. Get in with him. That's what salvation is. Put your faith in him unreservedly and know then the greatest rescue of all and the forgiveness and redemption and adoption and assurity that comes with it all. Amen. If the band want to come up, I'm going to pray. Oh Lord, as we prayed at the start, we do thank you for your word. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of illustration. Lord, we are Jessica McClure. That was us. We were dead in our transgressions. We were lost and we were helpless to get ourselves out of it. We tried. But we were stuck and we were unmovable by ourselves. And yet you come looking for us. You come running after us. You come pursuing us on the greatest rescue mission ever told. Oh Lord, would we never lose sight of the glories of Calvary? Would we never lose sight of all that you've done for us in your magnificence and splendor for your glory? And would we all then stand around your throne singing, worthy is the Lamb, as we realize it's all about you. My death was arrested by you. And that's then when my life began. Lord, thank you for salvation. Thank you for the gift of your son. And would in you would we find great rest. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Church, let us stand and sing with hearts full of thankfulness to God for rescuing us, arresting death, bringing us to life in his son.